You are now tuned in to the Addicted to Success.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next level game changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on Addicted to Success.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm here today with Mr. Half a Billion Books, <laughs> Mr. Success Principles, and the man himself, Jack Canfield. Jack, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Thanks. My pleasure, Joel. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. Jack, I uh, had the pleasure of watching you speak uh, at two events, uh, one out in uh, San Diego last year. And I think another year or two before that, I saw you in, in Vegas and both times I was blown away. I love how your exercises are so easy to, to action. And I saw a lot of people just like standing in the room, looking at each other and, and making comments. I'm like, wow, I just can't, I can't believe it. I think the visualization one was really awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, know, you. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So Jack, one of the key things that I want to really focus on throughout this session is the idea of really uh, implementing, not just learning and cognitively understanding, but actually taking the action on your goals. So can you break down real quick, just some statistics on how many people are actually setting goals and how many people are actually making a, a difference when it comes to their dreams? Well, you know, the, the, the number that keeps being thrown around is about 3% of the people actually do this work. And those wow. 3% of the people pretty much own 90%, 90% of the resources in the world. Um, <laughs> and there was a study done recently that showed only 10% of kids graduate from high school ever having been taught how to set a goal. And so if you grow up in an upper middle class or a wealthy family, you, your parents tend to do that. So you learn it from osmosis. But like most people, I didn't grow up in that kind of family. My father made eight thousand dollars a year you know it wasn't a lot of money and so I didn't learn how to do that until I got into graduate school I took a workshop a weekend workshop I met this guy in a laundromat who said you gotta you gotta talk to me and I was reading my book minding my own business and he ended up uh, taking me to this uh, weekend workshop at this foundation and I was blown away I'd never been exposed to any of this stuff here I was in my mid-20s so uh, from then on I've been setting goals and visualizing doing affirmations and my life has been magical as you know Oh, yeah. You've hit some pretty big goals. What are you most proud of in your career? I think up till now, probably most proud of the fact we sold half a billion chicken soup for the soul books, 500 million copies in 51 languages now, over 300 million just in China where they've adopted the book with English on one side and Chinese on the other to teach English to the kids in the schools. But uh, secondly would be the Success Principles book, which has sold over a million copies and I think it's now 27 languages. And uh, right now we're training trainers. Our new goal is a billion trainers training this work somewhere on the planet, either in classrooms, workshops, seminars, public things, corporate, whatever, uh, by the year 2030. And if we have a, if we have a, a billion, a million trainers training, by 2030, the population is supposed to be 8 billion people. So if a million people train 1,000 people a year, which is not that hard, that's like, you know, five workshops of, you know, 200 people, whatever, uh, by 
eight years into that, we'll have reached all eight billion people. So now, do I think wow. we'll reach every single person on the island of Vanuatu or something? Probably not. But the reality is, but you have to have big goals, and very rarely do you actually hit them perfectly. I mean, I have numerous times. You know, I set a goal to make a hundred thousand dollars when I was making eight thousand dollars, and uh, two years later, I made ninety six. Point two thousand dollars, and then set a goal to make a million. We did that, and then we made six million. Then I wanted to make uh, eight million in one year, and we sold a company for for sixty million. So I mean, it's like you know, but the point is, you've got to have goals to give you direction and momentum and accountability, because without a goal, yourself or no one else can hold you accountable, and that's the biggest problem. Most of the people watching your podcast and watching my shows and going to my seminar, they're solo entrepreneurs. They don't have a boss. And so we tend to do the things right. that are least comfortable. You know, we don't do the things that are least comfortable. We do the things that are most comfortable, whereas the things that are outside our comfort zone are the things that really produce our success. And so by having, if you were my accountability partner and we talked every day for five minutes in the morning and committed to what I call the rule of five, five things you're going to do today to achieve what we call your breakthrough goal. What would be the goal that if you achieved it, would break you through to a whole new level, like triple your income, have your own TV show, open up China as a market, you know, that kind of thing. And when people do that and have an accountability partner, they, they get create magical results. You know, if, if you were my employee and I said, you got to call Donald Trump, you know, call the White House, see if you can talk to him. You just do it because I'm your boss and I told you to. But if you were just sitting there alone thinking, well, he'll never answer it. He's in Vatican visiting the Pope or whatever, then you can put it off for days and days and days and days. Well, when you have an accountability partner, it gets embarrassing after two or three days of saying, I didn't do it. So by not having a goal and not having it be measurable, you can't hold yourself accountable. That's why a lot of people never set them because then they can never fail. Totally, totally, 100% agree. Yeah, I think a lot of people are really lying to themselves, you know, over and over again, every day, they keep making up this story of like, oh, I'm not good enough. Or if I fail, that that's a bad thing. And, and they don't want to fail forward. Yes. They're, they're scared of being judged <laughs> and scared of not being enough. Well, and we got, we got conditioned in our childhood. You know, we got a lot of F's in school. The teacher never checked the right ones. They put a big X where it was wrong. The one time you got up to talk about your geography report, you misspelled a word and they laughed at you. I remember when I was in, a, I was in Sunday school and we had to read something from the Bible and I read Jesus sprung from Mary's and I said W-O-M-B. And the only word I'd ever seen like that was bomb, B-O-M-B. So I said, Jesus sprung from Mary's womb and everybody laughed. <laughs> that was the last time I wanted to read anything, you know, for a couple of years until I got over that. But that's, all of us have these wounds from childhood. I like to use the metaphor, if you were getting on a plane and you saw the pilot was six years old and he was walking into the cockpit, going to fly the plane, most people will go, uh, I don't feel so safe here. This is not good. <laughs> but most of us are being piloted by a six-year-old consciousness, made decisions when we were young that we're not smart enough. It's not okay to be outrageous. You can't ask for what you want, you know, all that kind of stuff. So basically we have to deprogram that programming and then reprogram ourselves for success. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, what are some rules that you love to break that society usually lays down on people? Well, I, I, I think a lot, of, I think most rules are made to be breaking, broken, not, you know, don't kill people, don't steal things, things like that. Right. But I, I, I'm very irreverent. I have a lot more fun than most people do. Um, I ask for what I want. 
you know, I was told as a kid, don't ask, you'll bother people. So I'm a big asker. Uh, I coined a term a few years ago, become an asshole. You know, you want to ask, 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 until you get a yes. You know, I tend to speed a little bit when there's no one around because the conditions are safe and the rules are just, you know, ridiculous at some level. But I don't know. I can't, I don't have a list of like rules I break in my head, but I, I'm always willing to go and ask for what I want. You know, I, I believe it. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about James Cameron. James Cameron's the producer that did Titanic and, and um, right. uh, Avatar and so forth. And we were talking about how he and other directors, <clears throat> Ron Howard, excuse me, et cetera, they always believe something's possible. You know, when, when they were making Indiana Jones, the movie, and he's down there in the, in, in the snake pit, you know, they put a bunch of snakes down there and it didn't look scary. And so they ordered, you know, thousands of snakes from every place in Europe and Africa. They could find a snake in order to do it. And it cost them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for that one scene. But it was called, we're going to do whatever it takes. And most people don't do that. They don't do whatever it takes. There's a famous story mm. that I wrote about in Chicken Super and Soul about Tony Robbins. When he first uh, was uh, getting wealthy and he was starting to do more philanthropy and he was in New York and he said to his team, I want you to go rent a van. We're going to take 38 baskets of food to the homeless up in Harlem tonight. And so he comes back from his radio and TV interviews and he says, where's the van? They said, we couldn't get one. It's Thanksgiving weekend. There wasn't one available. Tony said, come on, you work for Tony Robbins. What what the hell is this? You know, come on. (laughs) So he went down to the street and he literally, as vans would come by, he would just jump out in front of them and go like this. And, and they said, Tony, no one's going to do that. And he said, they will. And eventually, this guy stopped, turned out to be the captain of the Salvation Army, whose job it is to feed the homeless. And Tony went out and fed 32 baskets or 38 baskets of food to the homeless. The point being that his staff had given up because all the vans were rented. And Tony said, there's millions of vans in New York City. Let's just go ask. So he stood in the street and just did that until he got one. Most people would never do that. But the people mm-hmm. that succeed do do that. They're, they're willing to be embarrassed. They're willing to be rejected. They're willing to be foolish. And most people don't want They protect their image and they don't get successful. Right. Do you feel like, obviously, there's some programming that begins early on in their life. But do you feel like some people just have this innate ability within them or do you feel like everything is learned? I think some people are born with a little more drive than others. I I think, you know, some people are more extroverted. Some people are more introverted. Some people are born with this gigantic vision. Some people are born to play a solo violin, but they make great albums for meditation, you know? So the idea is you have to kind of tune into what is your thing that brings you the greatest joy. Uh, Mm. My whole belief is that each of us is has a internally built purpose inside of ourselves something we're meant to do and the way we know that is we enjoy doing it you know, some people love playing music other people could care less some people love playing sports the, the guy playing the elbow in the band's never going to be a football player some people like to be up on the stage some people want to be behind the stage and so if everyone did the thing that they're I, I won't call it program but designed to do then i believe the whole world will work like I see the body of humanity like cells in a, in, a, in a body. So you might be a brain cell, someone else is a liver cell, someone else is an eyeball cell. If all the cells do their job, then the body works. If some of the cells decide not to play, then we're missing functions. And so a lot of us are, you know, there are probably people out there with, that could solve huge world problems if they just believed in themselves. And we may never get the advantage of that. But fortunately, 
I think the universe, it builds in redundancy, meaning there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people who want to do the same thing, cure cancer, put on television shows, do these things that you and I do, et cetera. So there's that overlap. So, uh, no, I don't think we all start out equal. I think we have different skills, different desires, different predilections, different personalities. Mm. While we're on this train, uh, I remember you sharing your story of when you came up with the idea of Chicken Soup for the Soul mm-hmm. and you were rejected by a number of publishers. I don't yeah. know exactly now. What, how many publishers rejected you? 144. The 145th publisher said yes. <laughs> this is like this is like some Colonel Sanders style thing. <laughs> it is, it is. Yeah, he was over yeah. a thousand rejections. Yeah. Right, right. We're getting close yeah. to it. So so like what was it that was like, you know what? I'm relentless on this pursuit of of getting this book out there. Like what what do you believe it was that you just was it your vision? Was it like a do you it was like a, a combination of things, Joe? I think I think what's, what started the book was I was teaching in an inner city, all black high school in Chicago when I was a high school teacher. And I became much more interested in why my students weren't motivated than I was in teaching history because they weren't motivated. And so I started to find how can I motivate these kids? And what I found in addition to going to the W. Clement and Jesse V. Stone Foundation, who was a friend of Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich and learning all these things, was that whenever I would tell a story, my kids would be like this. They would just be on the edge of their seat. When I was talking historical, uh, you know, facts and theory, we were just like dead. (laughs) So I realized the power of story. So I had been collecting motivational, inspirational stories for years, and I used them in my talks. And people would come up and say, that story about the Girl Scout, that story about the Girl Scout that sold the most cookies of anyone in the world, over 3,000 boxes of Girl Scout cookies in one year. The Boy Scout who did this, the kid who did that, the person who climbed Mount Everest who didn't have legs, you know, whatever it was. And they said, is that in a book? I, I want my daughter to read that. I want my staff to hear that. So I was being knocked on the head put stories in a book. And then I didn't have a title. So we're going to New York and we have to have a title for the book because we're going to start pitching the book to the publishers. And so Mark Victor Hanson, my, co- my co-author and I, we sat down and we said, look, let's, motive, let's meditate for a week and we'll just ask God, higher power, source, infinite intelligence for a title. And so two days I sat there for an hour every morning, nothing came. A third day, this big chalkboard appeared and a big hand wrote chicken soup on it. And I thought, chicken soup, what the heck does that have to do with this book? I'm having that thought. And the voice of this hand said, when you were sick, your grandmother gave you chicken soup. And I said, but this is not a book about sick people. And the voice responded, people's spirits are sick. They're living in resignation, hopelessness, and fear. This was 1993, first Gulf War. We were going through a recession, just like the one we went through in the, in the late 89, you know, last one we went through. And so what happened is I went chicken soup for the spirit, chicken soup for the soul, and I got goosebumps. I told my wife she got goosebumps. I told Mark he got goosebumps. I told my agent he got goosebumps. And as I like to say, we went to New York, talked to 21 publishers. Nobody got goosebumps. And so that's why we had to, we had to keep going. But at that point, I knew people wanted the stories. I knew the title was right because when I get goosebumps, Mark calls them God bumps. You know, it's like it's the, your intuitions telling you you're on purpose. And I right. think this too, Joe. I think that when you have a goal that really is magnificent and huge and impactful and will really give you and the world a lot of benefit – it, they're not going to make it easy for you. They want to test you. You know, when I say they, the universe wants to test you. How committed are you? And, you know, if, 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 if achieving goals was easy, everyone would be thin, everyone would be buff, everyone would be exercising, meditating, eating the right foods, getting eight hours sleep, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's not. It takes discipline. It takes courage. Jack, 
you've uh, you've gone through periods where you've had massive success and obviously like any entrepreneur you probably had your your challenges was there ever a point in in your uh career where you felt like just stepping away from the spotlight uh probably once a week <laughs> like, once a week <laughs> that's been pretty real <laughs> no, i travel a lot and sometimes i'm going why am i another plane why am i in a hotel why is my wife saying i miss you you know whatever um <laughs> And as now as old as I am, 72, it's like I, my wife's kind of say, you've got all the money you need, why don't you retire? And the truth is, I really love this work. I think, you know, the biggest challenge I've ever had was more of a personal one when I got a divorce 20 years ago. Uh, I, at that time, my net worth was maybe, you know, about $16 million, my wife. Uh, so we had stocks and bonds and cash, and then we had our house and our offices and my company. So my wife ended up getting all the money, all the stock, all the bonds, half the property we had, and I got to keep my job, basically, and because uh, my company was valued at what all that was. And I was really upset. And I really thought, this is not fair. I'm wearing my shirts three days in a row instead of sending them to the cleaners because I just needed to conserve money. And, and it was a tough time. But what I say to people is that every difficult time I've ever had, and I think you'd agree with this, out of that came something powerful because I had to re-vector my career. I had to like start over in a sense that Chicken Soup for the Soul was doing so well, I got a little lazy. You know, we were just putting out these books. It became kind of a system that was working really well. And I wasn't learning all that much new. And then what happened when I didn't have that, I said, oh, I got to really gear up and make a lot of money quick. And so I, that's when I wrote the Success Principles book and it totally revectored my career. Because you're not going to get paid $35,000 for a day's workshop to come and tell warm and fuzzy stories. It doesn't work. You have to have more value than that. And because I wrote that book, I now get invited to speak to governments and all over. I've, I've been in seven countries in the last six weeks teaching this stuff and getting really good fees for it, $60,000 a day when I go overseas. So, you know, I can make a half a million dollars a month just as a speaker, which I wouldn't have been able to do as a chicken soup for the soul guy. So, Everything that happens, and the other thing that happened is in the divorce settlement that I wanted to give my wife, she would have had half of my income for the rest of my life. We went to a mediator. The mediator in California, you have to have two lawyers, look at the mediation, decide is it fair or not. And her lawyer decided if she did that, she'd make $500. If she got into a contested fight, she'd make a lot more money. So as a result of all that, eventually she got everything I just talked about, but I didn't have to give her half my income for the rest of my life. And seven years later, I made $63 million. So it was like, I would have had to give her all that. I, I turned out much better for me at the time. So I always ask people, when you look at a, a challenge, ask yourself, what's the opportunity that this is? I believe that the world is plotting to do me good. I'm an inverse paranoid as opposed to thinking the world's out to get me. And if you take that position, then you're always looking for the positive and then you're happier and you're always doing the thing you need to do to go to the next level. Yeah. Amen, brother. Yeah. The, the cards are so heavily stacked in our favor. So yeah, exactly. we'll just forget that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I feel you on this, Jack. Right now I'm just wrapping up a divorce. So mm -hmm. uh, I've been through that experience and it was really interesting because I had this whole identity where it was like, I'm not successful if I don't have the successful relationship with the successful business and, and all that. And when that went away, I was like, whoa, my whole world was like shattered. I was like, oh no, yeah. this isn't like what I expected. This is not what I signed up for, right? Right. 
So, but you get to reinvent whatever that means to you and you get to come out stronger and more mature and, and uh, to take a different approach the next time, right? Well, and you also become more believable to your audiences because now you're more human. You know, it's like sometimes if you're like Tony Robbins and people go, well, I could never be that, you know, but, you know, I, I, this is my third marriage. My first one was five years. My second one was 20 years and I've been married 21 years to my, my third wife. Imagine this line. Imagine having to deliver this line from the stage. Yeah, my ex-wife and I used to run couples workshops. <laughs> <You> know, <it's> like, <laughs> how embarrassing is that? One. You know what I mean? So, but the truth is, you know, when all these rules were made up about how you should stay married for life and everything, the average life expectancy back in Rome was 35 to 40 years old. You know? <laughs> so, so, it's like we grow and evolve and it's okay. People grow apart from each other. People, you know, expand their consciousness and move in different directions. And so it's okay to take care of yourself. And, and, and I really believe that thoroughly. Mm-hmm. I like to ask the Addicted to Success community if they would like to chip in with some questions. Sure. I actually had one from uh, Carolyn Zanetti. She asks, what makes you feel most alive? Teaching. I would say learning and teaching. I love to learn and I love to teach what I just learned. You know, my staff's always mad because they can never make a manual, a student manual, like a handout that's always going to be the same forever because I'm constantly learning new things and changing it. But I love being up in front of an audience. I love doing this with you. It's like, it's like um, tennis, you know, we're hitting the ball back and forth. And I get to be of value and watch people grow and watch their eyes light up and watch breakthroughs happen. And people come up and say, you know, because of you, I got out of a bad marriage. Because of you, I started the business. Because of you, I'm a billionaire. Because of you, I'm healthier. I conquered my cancer, whatever. So that makes me come most alive. And it's a good question because there's a great quote. I can't remember who said it right now, but he said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people who've come alive. Because when you're following your joy, going back to what we said earlier, we're all cells in a body. That means you're doing what you're here to do. Joy is your feedback system. It says you are on course. So good question. I believe that. I believe that. Also, Jack, I, I ask uh, the audience if they could ask some left to field questions. So sure. sometimes we get some really weird ones and yeah. really interesting ones. But we had one from Chris Rodriguez. Uh, he asked, who is your favorite Disney character and why? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I think... You know, I loved I loved the movie Aladdin. I thought that was great. You know, just the idea that you could fly around, you have a genie and you can ask for gifts. I actually wrote a book called The Aladdin Factor, which was yep. about asking for what you want. And if you could have three wishes, what would they be? And I think it's a great question to ask anybody is, you know, if, if the genie said you can have anything you want, what would you choose? Because most people never really choose what they want because they don't think it's possible. So right. I, I love I love that character. Um, I think, I don't know if it was Disney, but the, the, the movie Frozen, I really loved that one as well. There's just like uh-huh. the idea of just being yourself, you know, being authentic. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's some really good uh, morals to these stories through mm-hmm. Disney. They do a really good job of that for sure. Yeah. We've got another left field question here uh, from Jason Stewart out in San Diego. He asks, who would you rather date, Sofia Vergara or Jennifer Aniston? <laughs> You know, I don't know who Sophia Lugari is. I like Jennifer Aniston. I've never been super attracted to her. There's a little bit of a masculine quality. She has the most beautiful blue eyes on the planet, and I like her humor. Um, I, I, I'm, my ideal is um, Nicole Kidman. 
Nicole Kim, oh, you like the Aussies, do you? <laughs> I, I just like, she's such a, a broad personality. And when I saw Moulin Rouge, that scene where she's kind of singing, oh, yeah. that's one of the sexiest things I ever saw. That actually, I've got to confess, that's like one of my favorite movies. Yeah. It's, a, it's an epic movie. It is. Yeah. It is. Awesome. We have another question here from Jason. He asks, how focused have you been on legacy and impact versus making money lately? Well, I've always been focused on impact. Money was a byproduct. I love money. No question. I have a great life and I've been able to go all over the world and do anything. And if I can't decide between the blue sweater and the maroon sweater, I buy them both. And that makes it life a lot easier. But that was never what motivated me. Our, our line when we were doing chicken soup was changing the world one story at a time. And so it was always about making a difference. And um, so I think you have to pay attention to money. If you're running a business, you have to be able to pay the bills and pay your staff and all of that. And that gives you a lot of freedom to do that. For me right now, I'm focusing on legacy. Um, that's why we are now taking and making all of our programs online. In other words, we're taking all our live programs and making them available online. I think they're very powerful online, not quite as powerful as live because there's something about sitting eye to eye with somebody or doing a meditation live or being in the group energy field that doesn't quite happen online. But I realize I won't be here forever. Uh, and I also realized that we were in the Gulf uh, doing workshops in Bahrain, Qatar, um, Kuwait, Oman, and uh, you know, just all over the place. And everyone wanted to learn. I want to learn how to teach what you do because we need that in our country. And we can't get visas to the United States. We can't afford the plane fare and the hotels and weeks off from work on. So we created an online training program. It's 48 hours of instruction. It took us three years and $300,000 to develop it. But now it's available. We now have almost 2,000 people in 91 countries that have been certified to teach this stuff. And our goal, as I mentioned, is a million. So that's my legacy move, if you will. All the chicken soup books will continue to exist. The success principles is a classic. I think it'll be around for 30 or 50 years being read. So it's always been about impact and legacy for me. We're actually in a movie together called Rise Up. Yes. And I saw some scenes there and you said this line, which I was like, yes, like it resonated so deeply with me. You said something like, uh, awareness is not enough, but we need to take action. Yes. And it's so true. Like in this day and age with the internet and all these, uh, the, in, in the media and these things that people can now create, they're, they're highlighting what's actually happening in the world and all this good, but the action still, you know, we need to keep ramping that up. Yeah, I like to say, this is a little off, little on the edge, but I like to say, you know, awareness without action is like mental masturbation. It doesn't produce anything, you know, <laughs> masturbation doesn't produce babies and uh, action without awareness, you know, we get Donald Trump. So, I mean, the reality is you've got to be very, you got to have both of those together if you're going to have impact in the world that matters. And so right. um, too many people have what I refer to as self-esteem. They got all their books and tapes on the shelf, but they're not really uh -huh. activating it. So the real self-esteem and the action in the world never happens. And so literally the people that are most successful are the ones that act as soon as they get the insight. Mm, I believe that. I believe success loves speed. Yes. Yeah, implement. Yeah. I like that. Success loves speed. That's good. Money loves speed too. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> you got to act quick. That's for sure. Yeah. I think it's staying in that constant momentum, right? Yes. If you start staying stagnant, I don't know anybody that's happy that's stagnant. So it's just right. that like free flow. Let's, let's get into flow. Let's get into momentum. Let's keep the, mo the yep. parts moving. I do a lot of vacationing in Hawaii when I take vacations. And I see these guys are like 75 years old and they're serving ice cream at Baskin Robbins. 
And I, and I say, so what's your story? Oh, I was a real estate agent in Malibu. I'm a multimillionaire. I got retired. I came over here after four months. I was bored silly. So now I work at Baskin Robbins four nights a week just so I can have some fun. You know, it's like, wow. And there's also research that when people retire, if they don't do that, most people die within three to four years of retiring because it just, it doesn't, there's no juice. Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I guess that's why you see, uh, you know, Jim Rohn was, all out you know zig ziglar was all out wayne dyer was all like you got all of you guys i see you as the legacy leaders yes. really you're in this space right now carrying the torch and you have this thing and i love when i when i spoke to you last time jack you had this uh real love for the millennials yes. and you're like you know like kind of like you're ready to pass the torch on as well when when you're ready to go and you're like mm-hmm. i really want to make sure the millennials are uh, ready to rock so what advice would you share for young leaders coming up in this day and age? I think two things. It's a combination of trusting your own inner guidance, but also reaching out to the elders and not being afraid to ask for guidance. Uh, I love mentoring younger people. Uh, part of the reason we created our online training program and our training programs, and I would say easily half to two thirds of the people are in their late twenties, early thirties that come and take our training. Some are older, some are people dropping out of the corporate world in their forties and fifties. But I remember going to a conference called wisdom 2.0 or something like that. And most of the people there were young. And I remember walking away and telling my wife, I said, you know, I'm really, I feel confident about the future. There's some really wonderful, white, bright people. And what I love also about the millennials is not only are they conscious and they understand a lot of things we're talking about, but they understand technology at a much higher level. And so they're combining science and technology, the internet and scaling and, um, you know, with, with their ideas, we're seeing some amazing breakthroughs. I mean, just, I just uh, bought a program called the uh, brain tap where you literally have these earphones on. It has these eye things that come down like a little hood and it rewires your brain basically with sound and light so that you can sleep better. You don't need coffee in the morning. There's like, I think uh, 170 or maybe 700 programs that you can do. And all that kind of stuff is being developed by people in the mindfulness and tech and virtual reality. We're going to be able to take a workshop with something like this over our eyes and actually be there in three dimension. You know, a friend of mine runs a virtual reality studio and I haven't seen this yet, but one of my friends went to do it a few weeks ago that after about an hour of having the virtual reality glasses on you, if a guy is now convinced he's a woman because they actually, <laughs> you look at your hands, they're female. People were treating you like you're female. You look down, you see breasts, the whole thing. And pretty soon you can't, you, you, you are convinced you're not a man anymore. You're a woman. That's how powerful. So we can actually give, see, my big deal is experiences teach better than concepts. Experiences teach better than you and me talking like this. And so we're now going to be able to give people virtual experiences that we up until now have only been able to give them in a seminar room, in a virtual, uh, you know, reality chamber or in a, like a, you know, where you go in your sensory deprivation chamber, you know, where you're in body temperature, water, and all these lights are happening. You'll be able to do that now with just a headset. And the big thing that's happening, it's all going to be available through your iPhone as an app. And so it's going to get really, really scaled. I, I have a big belief that we're going to turn into computers and robots ourselves. <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny. There's a, I was down in the rainforest a couple of years ago, and I'm part of something called the Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama means the earth, the sky, and all time according to the indigenous cultures of South and Central America. And we were down there and they were saying to us, there was a, a, um, a uh, prophecy 
that said when the eagle and the condor fly together in the air, the eagle is the, you know, symbol of America. The condor is a symbol of the South. That when the eagle and the condor fly together, meaning when the indigenous wisdom matches technology, the people of the the North will have machines that think for them. This was 2,000 years ago. They said they'll have machines that think for them. Yeah, this is is interesting, the way that the world's going right now. Let's talk about the self-development industry. Sure. Because I feel like there are a lot of people nowadays that are, and I had a talk with Tony Robbins about this too, and he had some really good insight. I'm, I would love for you to share yours, but you get a lot of these people that slap, because it's so easy to put a status up now and a label and say like life coach mm-hmm. or fitness coach. So, so how do we keep the, the quality in the industry so it doesn't dilute? Well, a comedian recently said, well, no, it's the end of the world when all these life coaches come running out of the cities into the countryside searching for food. (laughs) We're going to have so many unemployed life coaches because everyone's becoming one. But I think it's a good thing at some level because even though they may not be at the level of a Tony Robbins or you or me or whatever, is they're, they're, they're working on a local level with people who might not ever go to Tony Robbins or me or you or Brian Tracy or whatever. So uh, I, I don't think it's a terrible thing. And they, they grow as they learn. But I do think what's happening is that with the internet, anybody can go on and basically steal a whole bunch of stuff from other people and call themselves a guru. And they're not necessarily living right. it. They're teaching abundance and prosperity when they're hardly paying their rent. You know, they're, they're not necessarily the healthiest person, but they're spouting something they read in a book about the Mediterranean diet. But I think, that, I think it's exciting in the sense that more and more people know this is an important aspect of our life that we actually should be focusing on. So that's good news. Um, the, there's so much things that are being developed you can study at home, you know, Mind Valley, Mind Movies, you know, the NeuroGym, all these courses that are really valuable. Uh, part of the problem is until we get to where we have virtual reality experiential work is that there's things that can't be done on the internet. There's things that can't be done with a headphone on, you know, sitting in your, your chair at night. I think that more and more people need to realize that so much can happen in a live interactive experience. I've been talking recently. I don't know if I coined the term, but I called it the tyranny of the Ted talk. Some things cannot be explained in 18 minutes. You know, some things require deeper unpacking. Um, you know, I do meditations that last 30 minutes, you know. So, but it, and if you do them for 15 minutes, you're not going to get the same result. So, it's mm-hmm. important that people realize. I was thinking about this yesterday. We'll go to university for four years. We'll come out with $300,000 worth of debt. And we'll spend eight hours a day on our studies. And then someone says, oh, yeah. I, I would like to know more about this transformational stuff, but I, I don't have five days. I can't take five days off. You know, five days is nothing. You know, I can't spend $3,000 for a seven-day training or a 10-day training or 15000 for a boot camp. You just spent $300,000 to get a degree, all that debt, probably a skill that's not that valuable. What do you do with a sociology degree? You know, I saw a cartoon the other day with two guys out in the field. They look like scarecrows. They had suits on. They had hair, you know, the little straw coming out of their things and a row of corn. And one guy says, English lit. How about you? You know, it's like (laughs) all these kids are spending money to get a job. So we've got to rethink about where we put our resources to develop the real talents and skills and awarenesses and mindsets that we need. And that's not always in a class in a university somewhere. That is so funny. I love that. Uh, I remember listening to an old, old Kanye West. 
uh, album, he had a skit on there. He's like, hey, man, what are you going to do with all those degrees when you're gone? Will they keep you warm when you're dead? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're cold and dead? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, funny stuff, mate. Funny stuff. Uh, we had a question come through, Jack. Uh, we'll just, we've got a couple more and then we'll wrap this up. But we have sure. one come through from Angie Yates Radford. She asks, uh, how did you find the balance after putting your book out there. So your books just, you know, went out there and you, they really took off. So like, how did you shift your daily habits and your schedule? So it worked better for you? Well, you know, I think as, as your life evolves, you have to constantly keep changing, you know, the level of how you live your day. I mean, I do something I call the hour of power in the morning, which is 20 minutes of meditation, 20 minutes of aerobic or high intensity interval training or weightlifting, like kind of alternate days. And then 20 minutes of reading something inspirational, uplifting or educational. Then I do other reading as well for my profession. But if everyone did that, you know, at the end of the year, you'd have spent 365 hours, which is the equivalent of nine and a half work weeks. Think about that. Nine and a half, 40 hour work weeks, reading, meditating and exercising, which most people don't do. And so that's my first discipline of the day. And then I, 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 I do a blender drink in the morning, you know, healthy stuff. And I take a walk after dinner and drink 12 glasses of water, you know, all the things you're supposed to do. But when I was writing, I'm, I'm a night person. My wife's a morning person. She gets up at 6.30. I go to bed like one or two in the morning and I'll sleep till like, you know, nine or something. Um, I don't start my professional day till 10, but I go late. And so... Uh, when I was writing the success principles, I would write from seven o'clock at night because I was running my business during the day and also doing interviews and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I'd hear the birds chirping. And I said, oh shit, it's been 12 hours. I'm still awake in the certain gray outside, you know, the sun's coming up. And then I would go and sleep till noon, five hours and start again. But I like long blocks of time when I'm writing to really get into it because it's kind of a meditative process as well as just, and I can do research on the net while I'm writing. Uh, when I'm speaking, it's more about, you know, travel and just maintaining your, yourself on the road, which means eating well, not drinking, exercising, all which are difficult when you're traveling. I mean, I did um, six weeks on the road. Literally, I went from Finland to Estonia to Poland to Russia to Canada, back to Russia, back to Canada, down to St. John Island, up to Philadelphia for a five-day training, you know, and, uh, and that requires real discipline but at the same time in that six weeks on the road i met my wife in st john's we had a six-day vacation with her sister and my brother-in-law uh, we're taking a whole month off next year in hawaii just to be in a house up by the ocean and chill uh, i always take the last two weeks of august off from december 15th to january 15th i'm i'm home with my grandchildren so it's like you have to everyone has a different rhythm some people can go a week and then they need a week off some people can go five days they take the weekend some people can go a month and then they want a month off it really depends on your your metabolism and your rhythm and all that i my wife calls me the energizer bunny i just always <laughs> seem to have a lot of energy it's always but i've been taking vitamins and minerals since i was in my 20s I meditate every day. I've forgiven everyone in my life, so there's not a lot of resistance in my system. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think happy thoughts. I tell a lot of jokes. You know, so it's, it keeps me happy. Well, you're looking good for your age, mate. You're doing Thank really you. well. Good stuff. Jack, you've got a lot of books behind you there. And I know mm -hmm. at the start of this uh, call, just before we jumped on, you said that you've read over 3,000. So that's, yes. to me, that's pretty, pretty amazing, pretty impressive. Which book stood out to you the most? 
There's a lot of books that stand out to me. And, and you know, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill was a really important book early on. Um, there was a book called Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, where he had um, done plastic surgery with women. They look much beautiful, more beautiful now, but they still didn't feel different. And he realized you can't just change the outer look. You've got to change the belief systems inside. So that was the first introduction to beliefs. Um, I've read a lot of books by Indian gurus that I thought were really helpful. Um, there's a book I love right now called The One Thing by Gary Keller. If you could change one thing in your life that would change everything, what would that one thing be? Do that. There's a book called The Slight Edge, which is if you just did 20 more push-ups every day than anyone else, at the end of the year, you'd have done 6,000 more push-ups. If, you just hit, if you're in the batting cage as a baseball player, you, you hit 20 more. Just that little bit of extra. So you're going like this, but that little bit of extra over time, you're way out here over all of your competition or all of the people you're, you know, wanting to be better than or be the best-selling author or whatever. If you'd write five pages a day the rest of your life, you'd write 1,500 pages a year, roughly. That's a lot of books. And that doesn't, you know, you can do that in an hour or two. So little things like that, those daily disciplines, those the books sort of help me come up with those things. Um, it's kind of like saying if you only keep one organ in your body, which one would it be? So, you know, there's, you need all of them. So I read in finance, I read in leadership, I read in communications, couples, parenting, you know. It always shocks me that people go, well, my kid wits is dead. What should I do? I said, if you, if you look for a book on that, there's probably 49 of them. No, never occurred to me. You know, it's, it shocks <laughs> me. And I took a speed reading class when I was in graduate school because I knew that information was where it was all at. So we all can learn to do that. Good. And it's no good if you don't have good memory, right? Before yes. the call, you also said you learned some cool things from a memory champion just recently. So, Well, I was just at a conference with coaches and was a memory champion. Uh, he's three-time American memory champion. He's, he, can remember, he can remember like pages of numbers in a row. I mean, it's just like I, most people can't remember other people's phone numbers, especially now with cell phones. But he taught us this technique for numbers that if you take – each number and you assign a sound to it, like a C or a K or an L or an M or an N. And then what do you do is you make like, like the word um, Adam would be D and M or the two consonants. You only, you make up words that you can remember because you can remember Adam. And so D and M are the numbers. And so D would be, um, see if I can remember, I just learned this five, I think it's um, no one, so it's a one. And then uh, the M is three, because it has three downstrokes when you make the M. Anyway, so you can take whole long strings of numbers, just make words out of them, and then you link the words together. Oh. And the other thing he taught us was how to remember long lists. I can still remember the list he said, you know, because what you do is you create a story so there was like, a, the first thing was a mustache. The second thing was a knife. The next thing was a bicycle, then a pencil, then an onion, then a pool, then a skirt, then a tango. And so how you remember, how I remembered that was I'm leaving my bedroom stairs with a mustache on. I fall on a knife. I got to get to the hospital. So I jump on a bicycle. I'm writing down my prognosis as I go. I slip on an onion, fall into a pool. I come out wearing a skirt, doing a tango uh, on top of a refrigerator with an orange lipstick woman eating a taco. And you remember orange lipstick and taco. So we all can do that, but we never were taught, you see. And so I recommend everyone should buy at least one little memory tape or one book. Jim Quick's a friend of ours who teaches this stuff. This guy's name was like Dennis Ellison, something like that. But the point is, no one, were you in school? Do they teach you how to memorize things? I know. There's a and lot you, of things. And you I spend your school. whole time in school <laughs> memorizing things, right? You know, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking back a, a few weeks ago 
And I was like, did we ever learn anything about self-development in school? No. No. Right? We didn't learn anything about limiting beliefs, right? which would have been so core and yes. foundational for us to actually excel in our exams and everything else. I right. just, like taxes, I didn't really, we didn't really learn. We skimmed over things. It was like taxes and how to have actually powerful relationships and things, yeah. all these really core cool key things we don't have. No, no, no one ever got divorced because they failed to memorize the five causes of World War II. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> we got divorced because we never learned how to communicate. We didn't know how to pick correctly in the beginning. We didn't learn how to deal right. with conflict, you know, forgiveness, all that stuff. It's, it's really bizarre what we don't learn. Yeah, crazy stuff. Yeah, my, my goal, literally, I developed a curriculum for schools. I've not given up on it, but I think every year there should be one class every day, just like you have math and science and history and English, is self-development. And you learn how to deal with your feelings. You learn how to handle your beliefs. You learn how to develop strong beliefs. You learn how to set goals, how to use affirmations, visualization, ask for things, handle rejection. These are the things that make or break your life. Yeah. Well, actually, my friends have created an organization where, and they're getting a lot of funding from mm -hmm. online through all the self-development communities. And uh, a lot of coaches and speakers are funding this. They're going into schools in Tanzania, in Africa, and teaching kids self-development. Very and good. I was, I was like, we don't even have that in the, in the Western world right now. Yeah. Well, I just had two guys attend my uh, Breakthrough to Success seminar. It's a five-day seminar I do twice a year. It's coming up in August. We're doing it again. And they were from Chile. And they're going, they've developed uh, five different curriculum guides now for the schools in Chile. And they're actually getting, I think they're in like 105 schools already. And I said, I said, I said where'd you guys meet? Because they were very, fairly different. They said, in prison. I said, what? In prison? <laughs> I said, yeah. It's not like we were bandits or anything, but what they, it turns out they had a student riot because the education system was so bad and they were out there basically demonstrating for a better education. They both got arrested in their cell. They said, we've got to change the education system and now they're actually doing it. Um, so wow. it's starting to happen. It's starting to happen. I love that. Moving the needle. Yeah. Hell Yeah. Jack, you have an awesome uh, goal-setting webinar uh, that I've seen before. It's called The Six Steps to Achieve Any Goal and Create an Extraordinary Life. So yes. how do we get access to that? Because I'd love to share that with my community. Well, you can just go to jackcanfield.com. I think also my, my staff probably have given you a, um, a, uh, a URL you can go to. My glasses so we go to jackcanfield.com slash goals. Okay, yes. guys, so, so yep, G-O-A-L-S, yep. just jackcanfield.com slash goals. Perfect. And you can register for that. Also, you have an awesome uh, vision board uh, webinar as well and checklist. So, you've got mm -hmm. uh, jackcanfield.com slash checklist. Right. Okay, so make sure you check that out as well. And also, one last thing. I mentioned this program we do, Breakthrough to Success. These Chilean guys came. You just go to jackcanfield.com forward slash BTS, and you can actually uh, possibly win some tickets to our, our program. There you go. Nice and easy slash yeah. BTS on the end of jackcanfield.com. So check that out, guys. After this podcast, make sure you go. Go and check it out because, you know, there's a lot of information out there, but when it's put together with intention like Jack has and really going in, because I know, Jack, you've really like spent the time and the effort. And this is not just like, oh, let's do this in a few hours or a day. This has been decades of your experience compiled into a highly effective teaching. So, I highly recommend this. You know, we recommend a lot of content uh, on addicted to success around self-development, but I really believe that this here is, is really going to move the needle. So make sure you check it out, guys. All right.
Jack, thanks a million for jumping on. I really appreciate you, mate. And uh, looking forward to seeing you out here in Australia more often as well. Well, I've got a number of people over there that want me to come, so I'm going to have to do it pretty soon. I, I've been to Australia twice. I love Australia. Um, I've spoken in Sydney and Brisbane, but I want to get all, to all the other cities as well. And uh, my brother-in-law is actually the consul general in, in um, well, he just finished being the consul general in Sydney uh, for the United States. And now he's the head of the American Chamber of Commerce in Sydney. So we've got relatives there as well. There you go. You got a place yeah. to stay. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Just be, just be uh, careful of the great white sharks on the West Coast where I'm from. <laughs> I will be careful. I will be careful about the sharks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, Jack, just before we wrap up this interview, we always have this uh, one last question that we end every interview with. And the question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? It would have two points. Number one, you have everything you need to do anything you want. You have the capacity. You're not allowed to have the dream if you don't have the ability. You may need to learn something new. You may need to partner up with someone. You may need to go back to school and get a degree, but you have the ability. So never, ever think you can't do what you want to do. And the second part of that is you always choose in favor of love, not fear. The, the, the world is in a all the things that aren't working in the world now are because people are afraid. They're afraid they're not enough. They're afraid they don't have enough. They're afraid they're going to get hurt. And so they develop big defensive walls. So always choose in favor of love, not fear. Choose in favor of your dreams. If you do that, you're going to have an awesome, magical life. <laughs> 